What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. No one's giving me an adequate Brontosaurus, which would previously roam the lands. Who's that? Is John Hurt. That's not John Hurt. Who is it, then? Well, I don't know, but if you can do John Hurt, you have to, um... The, bro- the Brachiosaurus was once roamed the land. Josh, you want in on this John Hurt impression off? The Brachiosaurus roamed the land. Okay, that'll do. That's Steve Coogan and Rob Bryden in the third installment of the Trip Trilogy. This time, the comedians slash frenemies take their bickering and existential dread to Spain. Our review, plus my conversation with Josh and Benny Safdie, the directors of Good Time, starring a very good Robert Pattinson. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. We are back from vacation. I was on vacation. You got away for a couple days with the family. But the movies have piled up. They have, and we are going to get to many of them. You have indeed been a busy boy because you have a Golden Brick nominee to recommend, and you saw the movie that we originally thought we were going to review on this week's show before we had a slight change in plans, The Glass Castle. I'm not sure you'll be recommending The Glass Castle, but we will get some of your thoughts. Probably won't hear the theme music. Okay. Also, we'll share my conversation with... The Safdie brothers, Josh and Benny, they have a new film called Good Time that opens this weekend. It does have a monster performance from Robert Pattinson. He is so good in this film. We will talk about Pattinson, plus get their responses to everybody's favorite new segment here on the show, The Film Spotting 5. Though in this case, I think it might be The Film Spotting 4. We're working our way up In to my it, haste, maybe. I think I might have skipped a question. Oh, well. Hey. You got a lot on your plate. That's right. Plus, Extraordinary Stories, the first film in our new Argentine Cinema Marathon. We posted that discussion separately in the podcast feed earlier this week. A good start to the marathon. We'll have a little bit more about that movie and the marathon later in the show. But first, I spent my summer vacation watching all three trip films. And as much as I wanted to take down Adam's beloved series, you know what? They're pretty good. Rob, Steve Coogan, just got back from filming in New York to do publicity for a series of restaurant reviews um, this time a trip to Spain yes I will come you sleep well? yeah I feel like a baby yeah, yeah. Uh, well it's a gentle rocking motion would you ever do Shakespeare? I would have liked to have played Hamlet come with me on a journey of life watch your head Olivier played him when he was 42. Olivier was a better actor than you. Well, a different actor. A better actor. We should enjoy this Mm. moment, Eliza. We're at a sweet spot. I am in my prime. I have two cabins. Which is the best? Mr. Coogan should have that. Oh, Rob. Victor makes the chorizo like his grandmother. If his grandmother tasted like this, I'd have a nibble. The thing about doing more is less is more. Josh, it's Adam. Yeah, it's been a few weeks. Oh, you were Wisconsin? That sounds lovely. Lots of shops and stuff, right? Various ponds, lakes. Me, oh, nowhere special. Six days at the beach, Atlantic Ocean, just right there. Could almost jump into it from my balcony. Jet skis, parasailing. Have you ever parasailed? You're just floating above the sea. Such serenity. Makes me think of Byron. The smiles that win... 
the tints that glow, but tell of days and goodness spent, a mind at peace with all below. Whatever, doesn't matter. It was great. Listen, so Sam is saying we have to do another show. Joe called you? I know, nothing's changed. Same old format, same studio, same Mountain Dew from the vending machine you always get, same terrible poll questions. You're right, sometimes Sam does come up with a good one. I agree. Look, do you want to do it? Well, no, there's, there's little money in it. It's really about the camaraderie, isn't it? The connection between two friends bonding over movies, trying to sound smarter than the other guy. Kind of like Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon in those trip movies Michael Winterbottom directs. All the restaurants they visit and amazing cuisine they sample, first in northern England, then on a tour of Italy and now along the coast of Spain. It's all just an excuse so we can watch them grapple with their mortality and out-impression each other in the never-ending battle to prove who's funnier. Come, come now, Josh. I promise I will not embarrass you again with my perfect Owen Wilson impression that you couldn't match. <clears throat> that was a one-off. You have my word. <laughs> Look, just, just be there at the usual time. And since you did just gorge yourself on all three trip meals back to back to back, be prepared to tell listeners whether the glorious Spanish vistas and dueling David Bowie's in the latest course were tasty enough for you to want more, or are you ready for the check? Okay, see you then. I knew you were going to cast yourself and in the scene. part. I knew it. <laughs> so predictable. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. He seems like an awfully miserable guy. <laughs> Fair enough. I would annoy myself to death as Bryden, but, you know, I'd, I'd be happy doing it, I guess. <laughs> um, I'm ready for a fourth. Good. Yeah. This is good stuff. I'm so relieved to hear that. You know I am. I mean, I texted you, texted you right before like, you watched it. You, you were so worried. I didn't know that I wanted to go into a world, a world where you weren't sure how you felt about these movies was almost preferable to me, was mm-hmm. definitely preferable to me than a world where you didn't like these movies. Yeah, but how could you not? I mean... That's how I felt. Yeah. I was pretty I, confident. I suppose that it, Bryden really does start to get on your nerves and, and get exasperating. And I know that's the point of the character, right? Um, so I, I found in Trip to Italy, I wa- it was starting to wear a little bit thin okay. on me. But um, Did the you way feel they, that way in the Trip to Spain before the Roger Moore bit? near the end of the film because i don't really i, I find him pretty it as much I, I thought he struck a nice balance this time around the, his character mm-hmm. between in the first one where he was this almost corny representation of domestic bliss you know obviously supposed to be the be reflection the counter off to of the counter off of coogan right, right. Um, which which worked but it was a little strident um and then the second one it was it was a little programmatic where they're like okay let's flip that and which I appreciated at the time. Yeah, I mean, I don't mind that. I don't mind that idea. But the way they and it's just kind of a little bit sudden and thrown in your face. I never really bought it the way the way it's presented in the film. The idea is fine, but I really like the balance they have with his character in the trip to Spain mm-hmm. where he's ready to get out of that house. He's yeah. got a second kid by now <laughs> crawling around his feet. When the phone call comes, he's like, yes. Yep. I'm coming. Let me get out of here. But at the same time, there are those scenes of him calling back home that do have um, a familial happiness mm-hmm. and um, a, a sense of contentment. So, that, so there's a nice balance there. The trip to Spain, I like also how it leans more, not more, but leans again into Coogan's mournfulness right. and despair. Mm-hmm. It was, it kind of felt nice to see him almost content in. The trip to Italy, you know, he has sort of this, the guy's a great actor. He is. I mean, the, the ways that he is playing this character, subtle different shifts at different points in his life. So I, I like, there was a relief to see him feeling a little bit more on stable ground in the trip to Italy. But really what he does completely- best- 
reversed here. Yes. Yeah. What he does best is, I mean, the guy's got a sad clown face and it should droop the way it does here in the trip to Spain. That's what these movies are about. I, You know, mm-hmm. this wasn't a revelation to me because you've put, I think, the trip for sure on a top five list. Recently. Talked about that great cemetery scene in the original movie where it comes to the fore that this is all about particularly for Coogan, confronting his mortality. And at the same time, you know, it's it's a, a funny scene because he doesn't want to be one-upped comedically, so he just stomps That's what off. it's all about. Wonderful parallel here in the trip to Spain when that street busker, he invites him to join oh, yeah. them at the outdoor bistro. Uh-huh. And as soon as that busker starts pointing out that he knows where the best restaurants in Spain are, Coogan, again, gets up. He can't take it. He can't handle being one-upped where someone would know more about him than something and that right. he's not the focus. And so I, I love how that was an echo, too. I, I'm honestly debating right now which one I like better, mm-hmm. the trip to Spain or the trip, because uh, for reasons I think we'll get into that have a lot to do with how the trip to Spain ends. Um, so we'll maybe save that and dance a little bit around it. But yeah, these are all really, really fun and, and hit on some some pretty compelling realities about life as well. Okay. Well, the show can continue. So <laughs> I, I do feel good about that. I'm relieved, as I said, to hear that you had such a good experience with these films. And going back to that one scene in particular you mentioned that comes about three quarters of the way through the trip to Spain where this very attractive, very much younger probably more talented, at least musically, person than Steve Coogan is, joins them for that drink. And it's everything you said it is. But for me, it also ties into what we really see in this film more than the other films. And this matches what we were dealing with in the Argentinian film, Extraordinary Stories as well. The sense of narratives. This film is really all about these guys crafting a narrative, Coogan in particular, for how he views this trip and how he's going to view his life through that prism. So, for example, we get the metaphor that I don't think is the analogy, I suppose, that I don't think is overused here or strained too much of Don Quixote, where you've got Don Quixote and his, his partner, Sancho Panza. They dress up as them at one point, but it's also that book he carries around. I had to look up who Lori Lee is. I'm mm-hmm. guessing a lot of British people are familiar, but this poet who took a trip very much like the one that they're going on, and Coogan brings that book along with them. It's for him, I'm, I'm having that experience, and I'm going to then write a book just like him. So he needs this point of reference almost for all of his experiences to try to justify it somehow and put in this larger context. And what happens is he sees himself as the guy who has all the answers and knows where all the best spots are. That's his narrative. Yes. And when this guy comes along and just shatters all of that, right. then what is he supposed to do next? That's what I really loved right from the start with these movies is that these guys don't know what they're talking about they when don't. it comes to food. They don't deserve these meals. I got frustrated. <laughs> Right. Watching these oh, yeah. That's a good point. being prepared and brought to these two morons who really have hardly any idea what they're eating yeah. and pretty much disregard it and start doing well, impressions. Well, as guys instead. who do force ourselves to sit here and talk about movies and worry very much about how smart we sound or whether or not we're articulating anything at all, there's a scene in the movie that directly deals with that where Coogan lets out a sound, basically, when he eats something. I think it's one of the chorizo sausages. And Brian's like, let me have it. Like, give it to me. What are you experiencing? Yes, and he yes. basically just has, wow. You know? And in some ways, that's kind of how I am with these films. Like, <laughs> there is stuff to dive into, and we'll try to dive into some of it, I suppose. But for me, there is just the pleasure of spending time with these two guys. Oh, absolutely. And those impressions and how funny they are. And I don't really get tired of it, and I certainly am ready for more. I think there, there's just a lot of potential personal connections there are for me and I don't know how much 
other people listening feel that connection to these guys. But for me watching it as the third film, I immediately thought of my other favorite trilogy, which is the Before trilogy. And we've talked about how we're kind of the same ages as those characters, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. They're a couple of years older than us, but we experience those movies, at least I experience them, completely in sync with those characters. Right. Every nine years when we check yeah. in, I'm at the same age they are. I'm dealing with a lot of the same issues they are. These guys are a decade older than us, but 50 isn't that different from 40. Sadly, and, I'm realizing that. I mean, Josh, Although, I, I hate when to we admit hit it. 50, we might, we might say, you You're idiot, right. you had no idea what was coming. But there was a time just a couple of weeks ago where we were out with our wives, and I'm pretty sure we were talking about stretching in the morning and different things we should be doing and how sore we are. And that happens in this film. And all the all the concerns, they're on this amazing trip. The the locations could not be better. The food could not be better. They really are blessed. And yet the Coogan character in particular, so myopically focused on mm-hmm. himself and his own career, he really can't enjoy himself because he's too focused on that on yeah. his professional life and how it may not be going exactly the way he wants to frame it as going. And I'll just say, I'm watching this movie on vacation with my family where I spent way too much time thinking about everything else in my life. Except that vacation. Was, yeah, everything else in my life that was potentially bringing me down and dwelling on that versus the great time I should have been having with the beach right there and I shouldn't be distracted, but I am. And so there was, for me, that connection to it that also extended to the fact that as we were watching this film, preparing for this show, it's coinciding with all this madness in the world. It's pre-Charlottesville, but post-North Korea. Mm -hmm. And so I'm watching this film and I am thinking of it as a little bit of a respite. <laughs> I'm, I'm vicariously living through these guys where besides the professional concerns, not getting enough screenwriting work or whatever, all they have to do is sit there and go to these amazing restaurants and look yeah. at these amazing, these amazing places and all the locations and the scenery. And wow, I wish I could just disappear into those locations like these guys are. So I'll say I think that was a bit of a fault with the trip to Italy where this affluence that's on display, there's something a little more smug about it in that film, I found. The dress got better, the cars got better. Maybe, I, I mean, I guess you could debate that. <laughs> Coogan has a pretty nice car in the first film. But it's it seemed like they were more comfortable in this world of high-class restaurants, world-class resorts in the trip to Italy, whereas there was something funnier about them being out of place at those restaurants. Yeah, I wonder, as you say, it's like the trip. they almost feel like maybe they're entitled to it in yes, the trip to Italy. there's an entitlement. Where in the trip, it was like, what are we pulling off yes, here? Yes, exactly. You know? so, so I do think that was you know something that tripped me up a little bit there for the second one. But I think it comes around here in interesting ways, especially where this movie does end. And because you brought that up, maybe we should get to that. This is not an insular picture. On the I think surface, it's potentially it seems... going to rub people the wrong way. Oh, it, it could very much rub yeah. people the wrong way. But okay, how can we talk about this? Let's <laughs> let's just say that a through line through many of the dinner conversations is Spain's Moorish slash Muslim history. Yes. Okay, this comes up, and Coogan particularly, I think, likes to spout off about what he knows about mm-hmm. that, and and presenting themselves as very enlightened, repeatedly mentioning how you know the Moors were so far ahead of everyone else at the time. So that's just more 
table talk Mm -hmm. for much of the film. Fits in very nicely with the other things they talk about. Doesn't really stand out at you. And then it comes really to the forefront in a troubling, ambiguous, but ominous, I think we could say, way. And for me, what that did is suddenly it burst that bubble and it made... It made this personal anxiety, mm-hmm. these personal anxieties these two guys have, have global reverberations right. in a way that's, it's a brazen leap, yes. but it it worked for me. And it, it me becomes too. something that is, it's really, it is a funny little foodie movie. Absolutely. Lots of laughs. As funny as the first one. Um, but it also becomes, it has this sort of stomach churning anxiety about the the impending relationship between east and west Mm -hmm. i mean it really gains that sort of resonance for me at the end in and again this is something that happens in maybe the last 30 seconds yeah totally some people are going to be put off by it right depending how you read it in particular Mm -hmm. i think you could but i really thought for a movie that could have been comfortable Mm -hmm. doing the same thing again it really launches things off in an interesting new direction it's part of the reason i'm ready for a fourth yeah um not so much to answer that question but just to see like what in the world are (laughs) bryden coogan and winterbottom doing here no you have a really good point there because where this film ends and we will not spoil it it does potentially set up a fourth film that could be completely different than these previous three films which are very much alike so at some point, if a fourth one is made, they're going to have to reckon with what happens at the end of this film, which is not something you could have said about the trip or the trip to Italy. True. So we'll see how that does potentially play out. Hopefully, I agree with everything you said about it, in particular, the part about kind of bursting that bubble, because I think it does tie back to this notion of narratives and the way Coogan romanticizes certain things and sees himself, Bryden probably as well, as these enlightened figures Mm -hmm. who also, though, like to think of themselves as the kind of people who, when put in a perilous situation or when confronted with something really bad, that they'd be man enough to handle it. Whether they even fully believe that, Mm -hmm. I think on some level we get enough sense of them that they think if they really had to put up or shut up, they could put up. And I think the end of this film is a nice little provocation to mm-hmm. that. It's it like, is a provocation. okay, okay. Yeah. You, you think you're, you think you're ready for the real world encroaching on this fantasy life. Let's see if you really are. Yeah, and so I thought it was perfect. That's what I like about it. It finally recognizes that this is a fantasy life that, yeah. that they've been living and that while their problems are relatable, especially to others in middle age, they are still, you know, First world problems would be the phrase that that's now used. Um, so it has it has another layer there. Yeah, I mentioned Winterbottom. I have to say one of the pleasures, one of the surprises for me visiting these for the first time is how visually interesting they are. And you know, you could say that they're just travelogue shots, which are absolutely gorgeous, especially in the trip. You know, mm-hmm. just having been to the north of England and. Who is it? One of them describes it as a, a, a Turner painting, which is absolutely right. Which we now understand after yeah, having after seen, seen this film. Turner. <laughs> uh, and, and so these are just gorgeous landscapes. But what I like is how Winterbottom, I mentioned those food preparation scenes where we get insert shots. Yeah, I felt like we get more of those here. I'm not possibly, sure. You just saw them all yeah, together. So. Yeah, possibly. I, I, I feel like they, they definitely stood out to me in the first because I didn't expect them. Mm-hmm. I just thought we'd be, I didn't know we'd be in the kitchen so much. Okay. But I like how that goes back and forth because it's a yin and yang of micro and macro. So we're getting these like 
vast landscapes, which are just gorgeous. And then 20 seconds later, we'll get this really detailed insert shot that's of a different kind of beauty. So for a movie that really could have been just two guys sitting at a table, and it is for time. Right. There's a lot of medium shots. Winterbottom does a wonderful job of balancing that visually so that you can just get lost yeah. in, these, now, of in course, the images. It's practical because this is a BBC series like the other two films that I right. think is something like six hours long. And so that gives him cutaways, right? He yeah. has to cut up the dialogue yeah. and all the impressions and the humor somehow. But it I doesn't do think, have to be this elegant. No, I, I think elegant is the right word for it. And It makes me think about one of the other moments I love in the film. We talked about that scene, the Trezzo scene. There's some of the best just back and forth just between them in terms of making each other laugh, which is really what I love the most about this series is watching them truly try to one up each other. But it's more than that. It's when in that battle, the other person has to break down and laugh. Like, Kuga just has to admit that that Rob came up with something brilliant. he's the fire tougher not to crack. He is, but he gets Coogan here. Bryden definitely gets Coogan a few times here, and it happens in that scene. But going back again, I hate the number of times I'm going to use narratives on this show, but there is a sequence as they're driving up to that place where Rob is reading from a website or something on his iPad, and he is reading basically a review of the restaurant they're about to go yes. to. And everything he's saying, they're they're describing the restaurant and what the chef is doing there in terms that make it sound like he is, you know, he's reinvented food. Mm-hmm. And they've already been at one or two restaurants at this point. The experience they have at that restaurant is different than the others. They have this heightened experience, I think, only because they've had it set for them. It's been framed. It's been framed for them as if it's going to be life-changing, and it ends up being this kind of life-changing meal. See, another way they're frauds. You're not supposed to read other reviews You're not. before you go to You're the You're not. There is that other parallel to, uh, Come on. to film criticism here, I suppose. But as I was thinking about the other ways that the movie really appealed to me and that I connected to it, That whole notion of friendship and the relationship they have is fascinating because they are obviously friends, but like a lot of friends, especially at this age, they go long periods of time Mm -hmm. without actually really seeing each other. So we get those kind of moments where he meets the new kid that he hasn't met yet and probably doesn't even really remember the name of the the daughter, right, at this point. So we get those touches that feel true to us, certainly felt true to me. The bit in the rain where Bryden starts busting on him for telling the same story about the worst rain he's ever experienced, that happens to friends. That's going to happen over years of telling these same stories and spending all that time together. And for me, one of the touches here that I really responded to was how much time they do spend apart in this film. And maybe in the other films, it's equal. I don't know, but I felt it more here. And I felt it more because of scenes like the one where... Bryden is out for a jog. They both have jogging scenes at different points, but I think this is the first time we see either of them jog. It's early in the film. It's kind of dusk and turning to night, and he runs down a street, and he stops, and he jogs back real quick. We're not really sure why, and he looks through the window of a restaurant, and he sees Coogan there getting some food, eating on his own, and chatting up the Mm -hmm. woman behind the counter, as Coogan does. And Bryden just kind of looks at him a little bit, I don't think we're supposed to take anything away from it in a major way, like I can't believe he went out to dinner without me or anything like right. that. But he kind of stops, experiences what what Coogan is doing at that moment, and jogs on. And it just, for me, underlined that sense of, at this point in their lives, they do these separate yeah. things. They do have these separate lives, and there's no real sense of bitterness that I get from it. But even when they're on this trip together, they feel compelled to have those kind of moments where they have to get away. I think that jogging sequence is another one where Coogan is forcing 
his Philomena Oscar nominations into the conversation. I love how many what's, times what's he, the line? And Brian finally calls him on it at some point. And like, we welcome Philomena back into the conversation. <laughs> yes. It's been a good five or six minutes. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the best lines in the film. All right. A couple questions for you. Mick Jagger impersonation? Yeah. Or David Bowie Oh, it's Bowie. It's Bowie. It's Bowie. And, so good. And it's it's because I think that both of their Bowies are simply better than their Jaggers. Well, I yeah, think they're better. Probably. But... It's also about the content, the story Bryden tells yeah. in doing his Bowie and the whole notion, <laughs> yes. the whole conceit of it, of of imitating Bowie as Bowie's making the decision to follow him on Twitter <laughs> is brilliant. And the fact that it's killing Coogan oh, absolutely. is also it's what makes it so worst, perfect. The worst thing yeah, that could that he, happen he to He can't him. believe that, that <laughs> Bowie did think about, he thought about Rob Bryden and maybe never did really think about Steve Coogan. But of course, it does fit so perfectly. There was something so melancholic about that right as we thought about Bowie and his passing and mm-hmm. the way they talked about him and the way the world talked about him and for me I've, I've said this before I don't know if I said it on the show but when Bowie passed away he wasn't an idol of mine he wasn't uh, I wasn't from that generation I certainly respected him and love a lot of his music but wasn't one of my heroes and yet there was something about Bowie and everything about the persona of Bowie that it hit me really hard when he passed away because there was this sense almost of but David Bowie's not human. You know, David Bowie's sure, immortal. Sure. Yeah. And if he can go, then, oh, man, it, it, it's really it's true for all of us. Like, we really are mortal. And that, of course, then, especially as I have that feeling about Bowie, when I see these guys in this film as they're lamenting their age and they are always putting things in the larger context of their own mortality, the fact that they're yeah. they're not going to be around forever. And is anyone going to remember or care about them? And what's the point of all of this anyway? The fact that they did Bowie, mm-hmm. it it seemed more than just, whether it was premeditated or not, it seemed more than just, well, we can do a good Bowie, so let's get something out of it. It was it was so perfect for this film. Just think, and I know you won't like this, there would have been a time when he sat there with his phone and went, shall I follow him? Shall I follow him? Shall I think I... I shall. He's funny. Shall I follow Rob Brydon. I think I shall. Shall I follow Rob Brydon? Or shall I follow Rob Brydon in my later years? Uh, And that is when it was in his later years. And he would have pressed on that button and clicked and followed me and seen every tweet. Yeah. I think you could say that for most of the impressions that they are structured around a story or the Mick Jagger one has a story as well. That's, it does. that's quite good. And I love Coogan's little hand clap at the end of his. <laughs> OK, my other question is, have you begun to feel sorry for Marta Barrio and Claire Keelan? They play, I think one of them is an assistant and the yeah. other is the photographer. Right. And because these trips are also magazine articles, they meet them for dinner at least once each right. trip. Are they in all three? They are. OK, I couldn't remember and that. I got to say, by the time... With the trip to Spain, maybe it was just that there were more reaction shots where these poor women yeah. have to sit. Now I, I did. I, I felt did, it. Okay, good. No, I, I felt enjoy it. what these guys are doing, but I wouldn't want to be at the table with them. No. As the third and fourth wheels. <laughs> I like watching from a distance. Exactly. But yeah, I don't know. Especially if... If you don't find the impressions that funny, or if in the case of Bryden sitting with those women, he decides to keep pushing it oh, yeah. and just relentlessly go and for you, it. I think to make Coogan squirm. You can't check out. Because, they can't check out. No. And they're like their grins are kind of getting more oh, yeah. set and more set. So, yeah. I, I definitely felt that. And there's something, you know, the heart of this is the two of them at the table together. Just being fools, out of place, 
acting like they're in the right place and making asses of themselves. Right. So I guess that that's why, it, you know, the poor women, they shouldn't be subjected to another dinner in the fourth film. Things that we'll be telling ourselves in 10 years and actually maybe more like 10 months from now. You can't have everything is my mantra. I love when Bryden says that. He's like, that's how he's resigned himself to his life is, you know what? You can't have everything. That's my new mantra. And then you've got Coogan on the other side saying, we're in the sweet spot of our lives. We're ripe. Yeah. (laughs) And that matches what he says later at one point to someone, though, he's much more indignant and actually angry. He says... Who cares about these up and comers? I've up and come, <laughs> right? This sense and that he's absolutely serious. He is absolutely serious. It's another case of them trying to frame their lives in a way that makes them, I suppose, see themselves as still doing something valiant or something purposeful with their lives. The trip to Spain is out now, I think in limited release. If you get a chance to see it and you agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. A couple quick related plugs, Josh. We will link in our show notes at filmspotting.net to an article I just saw on Twitter today from Charles Bromesco. I think writing for Vulture, he ranked the top 18 impressions that. (laughs) that are pulled off in the trip movies. And of course, I had to be that guy doing a show that is all about ranking movies and constantly getting emails from people saying, no, your list was wrong. You did it. I had to be that guy who immediately wrote to him. Oh, Adam. Well, he started off, Josh, number 18 was the Michael Parkinson impression from the trip to Italy. And Charles point, which is very valid, is that, you know, Michael Parkinson is this British TV host that nobody really knows. And that's kind of the major strike against it. Well, I barely know who Michael Parkinson is, though I spent a semester in London and I have seen him on TV. So I knew the voice. But that scene is actually one of my favorites. I love that whole thing because it's not about the Parkinson impression. It's about how Bryden uses it to just needle Coogan about his career and all the other the British comedians who are more famous than him. That's what makes it so good. You had to be that guy. I had to be that guy. And Charles, he had a good response. He said, they're all good, but one of them had to be last, which is a good response. Have you used that on a listener? I don't know. I don't know if I've ever been that, that. that reasonable, but I will borrow that. The other plug, it did hit me that there are probably some current listeners who don't remember or didn't hear my interview with Steve Coogan. He was on Film Spotting about nine years ago to the week, back in August of 2008 for Hamlet 2, which I think he's really good in and I think is a funny movie. And it was a wonderful little chat, or at least that's my recollection of it. I certainly haven't listened to it in a long time, and I probably won't this week. But if I do find the audio, if anyone's curious, I will post it on our interviews page over at filmspotting.net. We've got the results of the Film Spotting poll when we come back. We're going to reveal who is the MVP of the Steven Soderbergh players. And our new poll question is a 1982 death match. Who would dare to vote against cute little E.T.? Probably my kids. Stay with us. When I fall deep into something I'm made for I start to wait for Take 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. People flooded in the area have some experience with police. Things have never been right for black folks in America. We're trying to mourn, and you came here with 300 cop cars, right? You're in canine units. You gonna shoot me too? But that ain't the story that you hear about. That's the trailer for the new doc, Who's Streets, which opened in limited release last weekend. The film was shot in the aftermath of the death of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, and documents the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. Josh, you did have a chance over the past week to see this movie, and I understand you want to throw its hat in the ring for Golden Brick consideration. Yeah, I think it meets a couple of our criteria. In addition to being a good film, it does come from first-time directors, Saba Fulian and Damon Davis. But the really interesting thing here with Whose Streets is this extensive use of mobile phone footage that they've gathered from numerous sources. Some of this is taken during the hours when Brown's body was just left in the street. So neighbors are taking footage at that point. And then, of course, in the ensuing days and nights of protests, a large collection of mobile phone footage. And What this does is, you know, we've talked about before when we've discussed documentaries, documentaries lie all the time, of course. And you have to go in understanding that these images, while reality, in a sense, are also shaped and chosen and selected. And that's absolutely the case here. I'm sure there is other footage that they didn't choose to put in the documentary. But Whose Streets does have a cumulative truth, I think, to it because... It's a little bit like what we saw in Detroit, and this was acknowledged by Detroit, how the mainstream news coverage focused during that uprising on a lot of the property damage and the looting. And uh, Bigelow's camera chooses to show us a lot of that. I Mm -hmm. felt maybe a little bit too much. It sort of fell into that trap, but it does show us some other elements of what was going on at that time, or at least recreations. Who Streets primarily shows us what these residents and some protesters were experiencing. And it's astonishing because what adds up are the number of dogs, the number of military like trucks, the number of weapons, the number of law enforcement officers of all kinds from local police officers to, you know, heavily armed. I think they might be from the National Guard. And it was I think one of the activists describes it as I think he says an unseen war is what essentially happened. And it's also, you know, this markedly different response from what we saw here the week after the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, where the law enforcement presence was comparatively light, Yeah, even though there were multiple reports of some of those people rallying being armed. Yes, heavily. <laughs> heavily armed. And yet it's nothing like what descended upon Ferguson. So, uh, you know, I think it's it's just a really fascinating look at how this first person imagery can at least give us another angle on things. There's a lot of value there. It is a bit limited, I'll say. There's not a lot of context or even really structure to this, um, whether regarding Brown's killing or the organization of these protests. We do meet 
some of the activists. There are about three of them. We get first-person interviews, little context there. But really the power in this are in those images. Mm. Just watching like one instance where people are standing behind a chain link fence and are being told, go back to your homes via some loudspeaker. And they say, I'm standing in my backyard. And the response is like, smoke canisters something fired upon them and this mobile phone screen just gets all sm- it's just like that you know mm-hmm. this was happening yeah um in an american neighborhood so i also want to mention that uh listeners should check out the represent podcast hosted by aisha harris mm-hmm. where she talked about this she had a guest jamel Bowie. both of them are from slate and jamel was actually at the ferguson protest for about two weeks so he particularly brings some of that context in that maybe the documentary itself is is lacking. So certainly if this is a film that even if you've seen it or you're interested in, give that Represent episode a listen. We'll link to it in the show notes. We will. I can't wait to see it, though. I have to admit, I don't know if my heart is ready to experience it at this point. I may need a week or so to mentally prepare. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be up for it after this past weekend, mm-hmm. but it does provide some interesting context having watched it just a few days before Mm -hmm. past weekend so definitely the two events were in my mind so right at this point we do not have on our website at filmspotting.net slash events any movie passes to give away though over the past few weeks we have had several such contests and we want to encourage you to go to that page you never know by the time this show airs there may be some free passes there for our Chicago listeners a lot of times they are for advanced screenings you're seeing the movie for free before it comes out one contest we do have there Josh is for Wizard World passes and we've been to Wizard World. I was going before. to ask you that. Is this the one we attended? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's the one we took our kids to, Addie and uh, Holden, because they were in their Doctor Who phase. Yes. I Has think they're that both out of their yeah, Doctor she's Who phase. Out of it. Right. Yeah. Holden's kind of out of his right now as well. But they were really in it at the time, and we took them to meet one of the doctors at that point. I'm drawing a blank. I was hoping he was you'd one know. of the famous ones, Matt. His face looks Matt. a little bat like. Yeah. Does a that little help? bit. He Matt was recent right. and young. And it's going to hit me at some point, okay. but for now, it will just have to go unmentioned. For now, we'll just anger Doctor Who David fans. Tennant, though, I suppose one of the more famous doctors, is going to be at this year's Wizard World, which is August 24th through the 27th. In addition to other cast members from Doctor Who, Josh, there are two Avengers that are going to be there, Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany. How about that? I love Paul Bettany. I love Elizabeth Olsen as well. Some of the cast from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, WWE, The Walking Dead, Firefly, and more. We do have one free pass, one four-day weekend pass to give away, Josh. All you have to do is email us, feedback at filmspotting.net with Wizard World in the subject line. Matt Smith. Matt Smith. Thank you. The power of the internet helps us out there. Details, again, at filmspotting.net slash events. You can use the code filmspotting20 at wizardworld.com to get 20% off your general admission tickets. We did also want to plug an appearance you have, Josh, a month from now in North Carolina. I don't know how many listeners we have in the North Carolina area, but we occasionally hear from them. I feel like we do. No Matt Smith at the Foot Candle Film Festival, just little old me. Oh, well. We can work on it. We'll see if we can get them to stop by. Yeah, this is September 22 to 24. They were kind enough to invite me. I'm giving the closing night talk at the awards ceremony. I don't think we've nailed down what that's going to be about. So I'll have to talk to the foot candle folks and see what they're looking for. What's there. a Josh Larson honorarium at this point? Uh, uh, how much are you how much Adam, are you pulling Adam, in after tacky. the book after the book publishing? So tacky to what's ask that, that sort what's of What's that like? Come on. <laughs> 
So if you want to join us, I know we do have film spotting listeners in the area. Come on by. It's going to be the 22nd through the 24th. As I said, footcandlefilmfestival.com is where you can find the lineup. This is the place that showed, as I mentioned earlier, Tower last year. Good taste. I am expecting some good stuff here. Okay. We also, as we mentioned earlier, have a new marathon that has begun five films taking a look at the cinema of Argentina, our new Argentine cinema marathon, all the information you would need to follow along is at filmspotting.net. Just click on marathons there at the top of the page. And if you are a podcast subscriber, you already got a few days ago the podcast episode where we talked about Mariano Ginas's four-hour extraordinary stories. Spoiler, if you haven't heard that, it's a promising start to the marathon. We do continue our partnership with the online streaming service Mubi, Cult classic independent films from around the world every day. Movies experts introduce you to a film they love and you've got a whole month to watch it. So there are always 30 extraordinary films for you to enjoy. Listeners of Film Spotting can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com. That's Mubi.com slash Film Spotting to redeem now. And it really is a seamless viewing experience. I watched Extraordinary Stories this way and uh, it looked great. Yep. Everything worked fine. No interruptions. So yeah, we highly recommend Mubi. Yeah. And if you are thinking about being part of this marathon, participating, and you have maybe been thinking about subscribing to Mubi, this is the time to do it. Get that free trial now because you've got about three more weeks to watch Extraordinary Stories exclusively available on Mubi. And the second film in our marathon, Castro from 2009, is also available exclusively over at Mubi. We have links to those platforms and the rest of the lineup, again, at filmspotting.net slash marathons. Charlotte Motor Speedway. I know how they move the money. The only guy who knows anything about blowing up real bank vaults is Joe Bang. I am incarcerated. Yeah, we got a plan to get you out. Soderbergh's back. The trailer for Logan Lucky, his new NASCAR set heist picture. Channing Tatum, Adam Driver, and Daniel Craig. It opens this weekend. Next week on the show, we're going to get to our review of Logan Lucky and do our fall movie preview, which, as regular listeners know, we do these previews in the form of questions, our top five questions about the fall movie season. Now, production meeting on air, Mm -hmm. I at least want to throw out, just to have it on the record, that I did throw out a better option. How have we not done Steven Soderbergh scenes yet? Are you considering sure we haven't? No, I'm not sure actually that we haven't done it. <laughs> Maybe we have. Have you looked in the archives? Nope. Nope. I fi- no, I'd have to you be know prepared, what? I but don't I don't think, think we have. I don't think we have. I don't either. think we have. And uh, that was jarred by seeing all these websites, of course, yeah, doing there's their a lot of retrospectives, retrospectives and doing right their now. ranking of all of his films. And at minimum, we could do our top five Soderbergh films, though I think my list would be pretty boring. So I don't know if that's a great idea. That brought me to doing the scenes where we really do hone in on a director, which those are fun top five lists to prepare for and to talk about. But they're a lot of work. They are a so, lot of work. Let's see how we feel at the end of this Logan Lucky show. Oh, OK. And and if we're up for it. Maybe the, if you loved Logan Lucky, you'd be so into Soderbergh. You just you'd really want to. I mean, I'd love to dive in some it. more. The idea is great. But yeah. yeah, that those top five questions lists kind of easy. They're easier. I'm, I'm even I'm even thinking about. <laughs> Just throwing it out there on Facebook and Twitter and right. saying, you ask me 
questions. And then I'll just take I'll them and transcribe fi- I'll pick them. five and answer them. And there's I, my list. I love this idea. You like that yeah, I'm going to steal it as well. <laughs> <laughs> Logan Lucky is Soderbergh's fourth collaboration with Channing Tatum. And that got us thinking a few weeks ago about some of Soderbergh's other muses. So we posed to you this question, who is the MVP of the Steven Soderbergh players? And some of the criteria we threw out to consider, versatility in various genres, in lead and supporting roles, are they the best thing in the best of the films they are in? And with that in mind, Mine, your options were George Clooney, Benicio del Toro, Michael Douglas, Matt Damon, Julia Roberts, or finally Channing Tatum. Josh, how did it come out? Way at the bottom, Julia Roberts with three percent, and Michael Douglas with four percent. Channing Tatum here with only ten percent. Who of the I vote. predicted would win it, and was obviously <laughs> horribly wrong. Been off your poll game I lately. Have. Benicio del Toro received eleven percent of the vote. Up at the top here, Matt Damon, twenty-six percent of the vote. Okay, we both picked him. That's where we went. So I feel pretty good about that finish. But kind of crushing it, George Clooney, forty-six percent of the vote. Don't really understand that. No, I thought he would finish at best third in yeah. this poll. But then I was reading through some of this feedback earlier today, like this bit from Rory Dunn in Vancouver, where he says, though I enjoy much of Soderbergh's work, when I think of him, two films immediately jump to mine, Out of Sight and Ocean's Eleven. And one face jumps out, the smarmy, smirky, far too handsome George Clooney mug. And you know what? I kind of was regretting that I didn't go that route. Maybe Clooney deserves to win this one, Josh. Fair point. And if you're going on the strength of the films, you know, Out of Sight, is up there at the top for me. And yes. Clooney's a big reason for that. So Matt Irwin also had a thought here. As collaborators, I think George Clooney has been more influential on Steven Soderbergh than any of the other actors in this list, particularly in the early to mid-2000s. That said, I think Matt Damon as an actor more fully embodies the versatility and experimentation that defines Soderbergh's work. Okay, That's so kind of what I was thinking. Matt has it both ways. Fair enough. Kate Fuego. Soderbergh can do interesting things with pretty much anyone, but I have to vote Damon because Soderbergh is one of the few directors who's figured out what makes Damon tick. Damon has kind of an everyman reputation, but his best performances, Colin Sullivan in The Departed, the titular talented Mr. Ripley, and even Goodwill Hunting himself, feature characters caught between two worlds or living a double life. Heck, even Jason Bourne is having a constant identity crisis. Damon's at his most interesting when he's playing with duality, and his two lead roles with Soderbergh, conflicted bisexual and behind the candlelight. Idiot playing genius in the informant have tapped into that thread. Little Weasley, Damon. Yeah, I, yeah. I think that works. One more note here from John Randall Reeves. Clooney, yes, a Soderbergh cash crop, but I voted for Channing Tatum. He's the current muse, and he's rejuvenated Soderbergh. In Magic Mike, if you're able to embrace the thongs and the foreground camera gags, it's a meditation on the crossroads of sexuality and commerce, personas, and true personalities. Next up, Logan Lucky seems to be a promising flick with Tatum, no doubt holding it down as he always does. Although Logan seems like a variation on an Ocean's theme, I think its more intimate cast is promising especially since Soderbergh does so well with character development. So for me, Soderbergh is getting back to a more personal cinema through Channing Tatum, huh? and therefore he's got to be the MVP. Well argued by everyone. Thank you so much for all of the feedback that brings us to our new poll question. We're looking ahead a couple of weeks to a Sacred Cow review. It's kind of a dead week on the calendar in terms of new releases. We thought maybe it was time for another Sacred Cow, and with the new Blade Runner, Blade Runner, what is it, 2049? Yes. Josh, Denis Villeneuve, mm-hmm. the director of that film, coming out in October. We thought we would get to our homework early and take a look at that sci-fi classic from 1982, Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. And that, of course, would give us an excuse to share our top five films of 1982. So it came down to a 1982 deathmatch 
and the two films we landed on. Blade Runner, a film that is going to come up in my chat here in a moment with the Safdie brothers, versus Steven Spielberg's E.T. So right now, sitting here, it's E.T. for me, which I've seen countless times. Okay. Blade Runner, and this is why it'll make a good Sacred Cow, I probably haven't seen since college. Yeah. Maybe. I haven't. Something like that. So I'm going to revisit both of them. I'm going to force the kids to watch E.T. again. They had a poor viewing experience with the grandparents a couple of years ago that <laughs> has greatly distressed me still. I didn't I give bet. permission for them to watch it. This okay. was just kind of like, let's throw in E.T., I've told this story that this is where B described him as a pile of mud with eyes and, and Addie became <laughs> fearful of the government. I'll never see E.T. the same way again. Yeah. So that's their impression of E.T. now. So I need to correct that. We're going to watch it again. And of course, I'll be watching Blade Runner again. So I will have a fresh perspective mm. on this death match. So should you watch the version where they don't have guns and just flashlights or whatever? So she's not as fearful of the government? No, 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 no. No? Not getting into that nonsense. You're going old school. Yes. You're going original with E.T. So my instinct on this was to go Blade Runner just because, and I say this knowing how stupid it sounds, because my instinct is to go with the movie that I think is automatically more important somehow. I think that's hmm. just my instinct to go with the movie that I feel is maybe more adult, more significant. And E.T. is this quote unquote kids movie, a film I saw when I was nine and thought was the greatest film ever. And then Josh, as I thought about it some more, I realized that I was being horribly naive and that if I had only one of these films to watch again, Right now, it would be E.T., and that's the way I'm voting. And we'll see if that changes. I don't know if I'll get a chance to revisit E.T. because I did watch it fairly recently, though fairly recently might have been like five years ago. I just know that I did, at some point in the recent past, have that sit down with my kids where we all watched it. And I loved it, of course. How can you not love E.T.? Did your kids love it? Yeah, they did. Great. Good kids. (laughs) Better than yours, apparently. Obviously. So we want to know what you guys think which film survives only one of these films will be seen again the other one it's gone forever yes that's right those Lost are the rules. forever destroyed now of course someone's going to write in with the technicality and wonder is just the director's version or the theatrical cut getting destroyed and will the other one exist we don't we don't want to get into that do we have to get into which version we're watching for our sacred cow review you know what Yeah, we probably do. Don't we? Here's the thing. So many emails. This is going to be hard. There's going to be so many emails. I'm just thinking about the the time devotion to this because it only really hits me now. I think I'm going to have to watch both versions to justify this and talking about them, partly because I've only seen one of them. And I'm trying to remember. I don't know all the ins and outs and details of the differences. But I want to say that the only version of Blade Runner I saw is it the director's cut that came out later and not the theatrical cut that added the voiceover? You're asking the wrong guy. Well, whatever version it is, I've only seen the one with Harrison Ford's voiceover. Okay. Because I saw it in the context of a class that focused on hard-boiled detective fiction and movies. And so, of course, with that voiceover, it really fit into that that context. You're not. So you're not I'm going to have to watch both. No, you're not. I'm going to have to. There's no way you watch both. You know it. I can see it. I'll start watching one of them tonight. (laughs) Tell us which version we should watch. We can't wait for those emails. Feedback at filmspotting.net. And please do vote Blade Runner or E.T. now at filmspotting.net. If you leave some feedback on that poll, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. Rich city folk live in fancy apartments. But their air is so polluted, they can't even see the stars. We'd have to be out of our minds to trade places with any of them. Dr. 
Dr. Taylor said we should be going to real school. A real school, huh? <laughs> this is as real as it gets, kids. You learn from living. Pack yourself a toothbrush, That week off gave Josh a chance to watch some new movies, including The Glass Castle, the adaptation of Jeanette Wall's best-selling memoir. It stars Brie Larson, great actress, Woody Harrelson, and Naomi Watts. And those two might be our best actors. They just might be our best actors. So you take that cast, you put Destin Cretton as the director who made Short Term 12 with Brie Larson. I thought a very good movie, reviewed favorably here on the show. How can it miss? This has to be a great film, Josh. Tell me it's a great film. I would like to tell you that, and I'm going to preface all of this with making the distinction that my comments are not to be taken as judgments on how the actual Wall family in real life, who we see at the end of this film, may or may not feel about their late father, the Woody Harrelson character. Okay, because I think it gets into tricky territory here where criticisms of the film can be taken as criticisms of the real life people. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I want to be careful with that. Um, Harrelson, this is a really tricky performance and Harrelson is good at it in that he fully lives into the neglect that led to real abuse. I mean, we're talking about burns from kids being by stoves when they're too young to molestation by family members knowing that that was a dangerous situation, other family members. Um, And so this is serious stuff. And Harrelson lives into that. At the same time, he also captures how this father was, or at least the character depicted in the film, exciting, inspiring, made these kids believe in themselves, creative. They had this sort of loose life, off-the-grid life. And he also captures the excitement of that element. So I think Harrelson does a good job of achieving a wider canvas that the movie gets less and less interested in as it goes on. And you sense that it's leaning that way, but this ends so strangely. I was I was really frustrated by how this film ends because hmm. it shows us a very complicated character, person, and then ends the film as if we're in some hagiography or some biopic that's lauding this person. There are still photos of the real guy. As I said, the actual family laughing about their memories with him. Again, maybe that's where they're at. But what the movie shows us and what the movie does does not move us there. So that essentially we're left with a feature length extreme case of denial. It reads like a really strong case of denial. Just the film. Yeah. Not not the people. Um, so it frustrated me to no end. And Naomi Watts doesn't get much to do here as the wife. Brie Larson wears a mask of repression for most of the film as the adult Jeanette Walls. Uh, she does get some more to do when it flashes back to her teenage years. So there's a little bit there. But, you know, this movie wants to acknowledge that its heart is in the right place. It wants to acknowledge that we can have deep love for a dysfunctional family member, even if we've suffered abuse at their hands. Okay. I think that's what it sets out to do, but it becomes simpler and simpler and simpler as it goes on and effectively erases that possibility where it becomes just almost like a, let's just forget that this happened and laugh about the goofy stories. And that just left a bad taste in my mouth. Huh. And as someone who, when you have the time, 
and you have the interest, you do like to read sometimes the original material before you see a film. Have you looked into that material at all? Do you know how it compares? Yeah, I don't. There was someone on uh, on my Facebook page who was talking to me about that and their memories of it. I think it would be interesting. It's also perhaps revealing that Jeanette Walls was heavily involved in this production. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what her credits were, but you do see her as well at the end of this film in these post-credit sequences with the filmmakers and very involved. So yeah, it's it's sort of this, you can tell the hesitancy in my voice because those lines are blurred in so many ways with this project. I'm very, I feel like it's very delicate to talk about it while being respectful of what that actual family's experience might have been and where they're at with their father. Right. Um, but as the film gives us the depiction, yeah, it's, it's feature length denial. Okay. The Glass Castle out now. Last weekend, I think it opened. It is in select cities now. And if you saw it and have a different take on it than Josh, we'd love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net. So Robert Pattinson has been getting great reviews for his performance in Good Time. Up next, Adam talks to the Safdie brothers about their increasingly interesting star and gets their responses to the Film Spotting 5. Stay with us. Rolling faster and faster, tumbling down again. So much room on this paper, don't know how to fill it in. Oh, where does that leave me now? Oh, where does that leave me now? Are you looking for value? Thank you time where we recognize some of our donors this week and read a few of their comments. But we also want to highlight our featured artist this week, John Mark Nelson, St. Paul, Minnesota's own John Mark Nelson from the album Four Days Away. If you like what you're hearing, more information at johnmarknelson.com. We got a donation this week from Brian S. Josh, I'm not sure where he's from. Unfortunately, didn't have that information with PayPal. Zach Kircher is the listener who I mentioned on our last show together that he sent us a card, went to the P.O. box. That's right. I got it finally. Failed to bring it in. This time, I brought it in. And Zach has some very, very complimentary things to say about us, and we don't really need to share all those comments. But There's also he did, a, a lovely bubbling brook on the cover. There is. Just there is. Very peaceful. People should know that, yeah. Yeah, I, I really appreciated that. But since he did take the time to handwrite this card and send us a few bucks, I'll share a few of his comments. It's his first donation to us in three and a half years, and he says that he has enjoyed the show so much that he recently wrote about his top five most influential critics on his blog, which is zachtasticblog.blogspot.com. And the two of us yeah, that, landed in the number one spot. I was waiting for that shoe to drop. Which yeah, would that be great? Off? <laughs> Make a choice, Zach. You know what? Make a choice. Decide which one. Well, team Josh or Team Adam. It sounds like a cheat. It does, which, of course, I can 
relate to. He says, you might say that the timeliness of the blog post is the reason why I've decided to pay the dealer again, but in all honesty, I can never fully repay what I've learned about the power, not just the machinations of cinema. Now I can gain life-affirming lessons and take in the wonder of film artifice instead of simply enjoying a movie on a basic level. Forgive me if that sounds pretentious, Zach writes. I just hope to convey my appreciation for the invaluable film education I have and will receive from you both. Here's to a bright future, and thank you for inspiring me. Best of luck. Zach, he picked up a copy, Josh, of your book, Movies Are Prayers, still available. Yeah. And he loves it so far. Oh, okay. Well, so, I will wait to hear, Zach. No, so thank far. Thank you for doing I that. I shouldn't have said it that way because it's actually love it so far, exclamation point. Oh, okay. I made it sound like kind of a downer. I like, didn't hear that in your voice. No. <laughs> I didn't want to give you that satisfaction, apparently. But we thank you, Zach, for the kind words. We thank you for the donation. We also got a donation, well, in the form of a book from Rob Hill, who has been a longtime listener of the show. And we do get these from time to time. We have lots of listeners who are authors and he writes excuse the impersonal note but this package comes to you direct from the u.s distributor rob is in london i'm the author rob hill and we've communicated occasionally via email over the last 12 years about everything from your 2001 a space odyssey sacred cow both my children's names were inspired by it yeah i'm that guy to the acceptability of adding a van to your surname so yeah he goes back to the very early days of the show i was an early cinecast listener though my sam van Hogren nickname is sadly forgotten i know funny bad movies are not exactly your bag, but you inadvertently introduced me to one of the book's best entries, the incomparable Jim Cotta. Matt Singer, Somewhere is Rejoicing. Yes. Which you talked about in passing some years ago. And my publisher is also a fan of yours, so we wanted to make sure you got a copy. And with the impending release of The Disaster Artist, I thought you might need a crash course on The Room. All the best, and thanks for making such a valuable contribution to the world. Rob, in London, you can find him on Twitter at Bad Movie Bible. So the book, Josh, I mean, I think this is a little bit of a shot to you that it's called the Bad Movie Bible, the ultimate modern guide to movies that are so bad they're good, that it has Casa oh, de Mi Padre on the cover. My top five picks are right. on there. No, it's not Casa de Mi Padre. It is, in fact, The Room. Ah. And there's also a little nod, I think, to Superman 3. Yeah, I was we looking got some at which Superman. Okay. love. So the Bad Movie Bible, it's here. I think it probably should spawn a top five list on the show, but as he noted, I'm not so good when it comes to the so bad they're good stuff. Yeah. I don't like have a great history it, with like it. like to keep it positive too, but yeah. we will add it to the film spotting library. Thanks, yeah. Rob. And I do, of course, recognize Rob's name from London. He's written in with a lot of feedback over the years, over all 12 years of the show. Wanted to give the book a plug. We'll link to more information about the book as well in our show notes. And we have a little birthday shout out to share. I always enjoy these, Josh. Can you please say happy birthday, Jason, from Betty? And here's the part that's confusing me in parentheses. He's from Hong Kong. I think she just knows. Betty just knows that we like to have locations. So Jason from Hong Kong or Jason in Hong Kong. So this is happy birthday. This is for our benefit. It's for our benefit. Not Jason. Exactly. And and to distinguish him from all the other Jasons in the world who might be listening. That would do it. Jason in Hong Kong. Thank you, Betty. And thank you, Jason, for listening to the show, and we wish you all the best on your birthday. We have a new $5 a month subscriber, Robert Goss. He's in St. Johnsbury, Vermont, and a new gold-level donor to the show, Jesse Marsh in Rumford, Rhode Island. So I think on that last show where we had a donation segment, we shared some feedback from Josh Taylor in Dallas, who was going through the entire archive 
from start to finish and He'd finally caught it, up. Right? Yeah. He'd done it. And Jesse has been going through that same process. They've basically been in lockstep. They really should commiserate with each other. We should share their emails or something so they can talk about their experience. You're implying <laughs> they might be suffering from PTSD or something? I am implying that. And it's just funny that we got those emails at exactly the same time. And we got this donation from Jesse who says it finally happened. I'm all caught up with every episode. I don't know whether or not to be proud or ashamed. My friend Brian says, definitely not proud. You listen to a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but from here on out, I look forward to actually staying current with your show. It doesn't necessarily get easier. Just warning you there, Jesse. And let's be real, he says. What else am I going to do with all this free time? I get a lot out of listening to the Film Spotting family of podcasts, and my movie-watching experiences have benefited greatly for your show. I sincerely thank you for all of the work you've put in over the years. As promised, here's my very personal top five not covered on film spotting lists. Love it. In honor of Adam, how dare you, Kempinar, all of my listings are thematic ties because what would a top five be without cheating? Indeed. Top five not covered on film spotting, Vanishing Point Memorial List. <laughs> He's even got the memorial list. <laughs> Number one, 1995 foreign films by directors whose names begin with the letter K. So, Mabarosi, mm -hmm. that's Hirokazu Koreeda. Right. And Lahane. Yes. From... Matthew Kasovitz. Ooh, good job. I wouldn't okay. have remembered the first name, but Kasovitz, indeed, the K starting director's name. All right. At number two, Jesse has late 90s music subculture films, Human Traffic and SLC Punk. Number three, 80s Disney live action films, The Journey of Natty Gan and Flight of the Navigator. Oh, this this list is just getting so Adam. There's an asterisk here. Yes, I'm going to jump down yeah, go to ahead. the asterisk. Go to the footnote. Because I, feel, I feel like Wallace. we haven't completely lost everyone right. at this point. Technically, Flight of the Navigator got a mention on an episode of SVU, but I think it was from a guest host, so it doesn't really count. That and you guys did Tron from Asker Theater, so I couldn't swap. So he got in. Tron in there too. Okay, well played, Jesse. All right, where where are we now? You're at number I feel, four. I feel like tra I'm trapped in the morass of an Adam top five. <laughs> I'm at number four. Six degrees of Kevin Bacon. He's picking Tremors and Sleepers, and then kind of did these backwards, didn't we? Number five, Steve Martin comedies The Jerk and The Three Amigos. Okay, so films not covered on film spotting, and that sounds right. I don't think any of those films have ever come up in the show's history. That's mainly because of all of those titles mentioned, I have only seen three of them. How many have you seen, Josh? Have I seen The Journey of Natty Gan? Um, I think I've seen maybe f four, five. Really? Yeah, I think okay. so. I so think for so. me, I've seen the two Steve not Martin comedies. Tron. Yeah, not counting Tron. I've seen The Jerk. Love The Jerk. Hilarious. The Three Amigos, I actually have a soft spot for. I mean, it's one of those movies that we actually sure. did lines from as a kid, but I'm sure it hasn't come up in the show's history. The only other one is one of those Kevin Bacon films. I saw Sleepers. I didn't love Sleepers. Who else I'm kind is of surprised it's on That's this list. Oh, sure everybody. Is, a is, pretty uh, bad Julia Brad Roberts? Pitt. No. A pretty bad Brad Pitt. I don't think it's Julia Roberts. De Niro's in it. He plays a priest. Okay, um, I think I saw that. I just saw the end of this movie, actually, Dustin Hoffman, a few weeks ago. It was on, and I remember being like, I saw this in the theater and didn't really like it. Why is that? And I watched the last 20 or 30 minutes. Jason Patrick is one of the main stars there of you it, go. too. Okay, I yeah. saw it. Okay. Well, it's now been talked about on film spotting. So not you'll have to come up with. List. No, it's not. You'll have to come up with another choice, another cheat. Jesse, thank you for your support of the show and for actually daring to go through the entire archive. A no-cost way you can help the show rate or review us over at Apple Podcasts. Every five-star rating, every review really does help us reach new listeners. This week, thanks to A.R. Dietz and Cosette's mom 
for taking the time recently to post a review. Is that a Les Mis reference? I mean, my I daughter believe, would be all in. I believe it oh, is. Cosette, she loves her some Les Mis. I gotta come clean with you about something. What? So I told you about my brother, yeah? I told you about the program he's forced to attend and how he shouldn't be there. Don't count your chickens before they hatch. Do you understand that? No. Something happened. I don't know exactly what. My brother's been arrested. He's being held at Rikers Island. You could get killed in there. A clip there from the trailer for Good Time with Robert Pattinson as a con man and petty thief trying for a score big enough to get his mentally disabled brother out of prison. Good Time is directed by brothers Benny and Josh Safdie. It had its debut this past May at the Cannes Film Festival, where Pattinson won raves for his performance. Very deserved raves, it turns out. It opens in limited release this weekend. So, Josh, real quick, the Safdie brothers. Do you have any relationship to them as a critic? Have you seen their films? Do you know anything about them? All I know of them is I think it's Scott Tobias who's talked about them and possibly had one of their films on a top 10 list. Yeah, I think he did. Michael Phillips, too, in 2014. I think he had Heaven Knows What, their last film. Maybe that's what I'm at number 10. So it has come up. I know Scott is a big fan of their work. This is their fifth feature before prepping for this film, prepping for this conversation. I had not seen any of their films. I'd only heard about them, just like you, sort of in passing from other critics who raved about their stuff, knew about Heaven Knows What and the good buzz it was getting, but didn't make time to see it back in 2014. So I have had a crash course in the work of the Safdie brothers. And I hope that people listening to this who maybe are in a similar position to us, Josh, in they know the name, maybe they vaguely remember the buzz about Heaven Knows What, but otherwise don't know much about the Safdie brothers, I hope they will still devote some time to this conversation because they are really fascinating filmmakers that I think we need to keep an eye on. And they are really smart when it comes to talking about their work as well. This film, Good Time, will feel familiar to anyone who has seen Heaven Knows What or their other films in terms of its setting and its style. But it is quite different in terms of its overall approach. Heaven Knows What is a film that combined both fiction and nonfiction. It's a film about a desperate heroin addict. It was based on the real-life experiences of its star, Ariel Holmes, who was a former heroin addict herself, and the film sets out to restage episodes from her life on the streets. Good Time is their biggest profile film to date. The star, of course, has a lot to do with that. It was written for Pattinson specifically, but it is also a genre film. It's a thriller with much of the action taking place over the course of a single eventful night. Benny Safdie, in addition to co-directing, also co-stars as Pattinson's disabled brother. In my chat with them, the Safdies talk about how their previous reality-based work helped inform the way they made their new thriller and Pattinson's impressive commitment to his character. But I started the conversation doing something I hate. Here's that interview. I hate starting off a Q&A with directors talking about any other movies than your movie. But I'm going to get to your movie, of course. <laughs> I was thinking about how to describe this movie uh-huh. to someone. And, of course, I think right away of Heaven Knows What, your last feature. Sure. We'll get to some of those similarities. Then you think about a film like After Hours, mm-hmm. of course, with the kind of one-night concept and mm-hmm. it getting increasingly more bizarre and intense. But the other movie I thought about actually was Blade Runner. Interesting. I thought about Blade Runner because of the the crime thriller angle a mm-hmm. little bit, the use of the neon lighting, though, mm-hmm. of course, much different. There's no futuristic sort of sci-fi bent to this film, but also that opening scene with your character mm-hmm. that you play, Benny, 
uh, his name is Nick. That test is very oh, yeah. much like that opening Voight Kampf test yeah. in Blade Runner with those weird word association games, almost testing how human he is. I felt like I was kind of watching that. So I was curious if there were any very direct cinematic or other artistic touchstones for this movie. Yeah, you know, Sean Price Williams, the DP, and myself, we talk about Blade Runner all the time as a major inspiration. And, and we do, I know Rob Pattinson specifically does see this film almost like a sci-fi in his regard. It's hmm. that it's a that his character almost can see the matrix of society and he can kind of manipulate it and work with it to, to try to get to his own American dream. But it is a dystopian, almost a dystopian portrait of, of real life, reflection of real life right now in America. So in a way, it does have that uh, vibe to it and the neon lighting and reflecting into the lens mm-hmm. and all these things are almost like uh, haze of the, of life and reality around the characters. Yeah, you mentioned that sort of dystopian setting, though very real. Besides the location in the the milieu, this kind of mm-hmm. underworld of New York City, it's also like heaven knows what in the sense that the addicts in that film are only concerned with what's right in front of them mm-hmm. and what's next, and it's getting that high, it's feeling good mm-hmm. in the moment. There's really no grand plans. There's no mm-hmm. thinking about tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It's just the moment, and I feel like that's very similar here. Except, except it's in the name of a grand plan. Yeah. <laughs> Ultimately, yes, they agree. do have some, but once once it gets going, he has no other objective. Connie, the character played by Robert Pattinson, besides getting enough money and getting his brother out of the hospital and everything that jail. comes up out of, out of jail and mm-hmm. out of that hospital. And so that's all he, all he is focused on, and any obstacle that comes up, he'll deal with it yeah. when that obstacle comes up. So that urgency of the moment seems to inspire him. It brings out the worst in him. It yeah. also brings out the best in him a little bit. So I was curious what appeals to you guys. We'll go to you, Benny, on this about those types of characters. Yeah, it's just a matter of um, you're uh, just kind of hitching yourself to the like the point of view of somebody who is moving at that speed. It Because this is a genre movie, you know, you're moving at his speed. And mm-hmm. the movie is going to propel yourself forward. And you don't really have time to think about anything else, and so much so that you don't, you're 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 looking and you're rooting for him to win in the end and get his brother, but you forget that he put his brother in that position mm-hmm. in the first place, you know. So there's a lot of weird things going on that you have to kind of think about. But there is this idea of of catching a character at this moment and then following them and then trying to learn about them as they move along. How do they lie? How do they tell the truth? And all of those things become narrative information in a way because they're it, you're learning them as you move along. Mm-hmm. That, that's always something that's interested us. In the writing process then, and I suppose in the directing process too, do you guys have a grand plan or are you like that character kind of relying on the urgency of the moment to inspire you? I got this character into the situation. Now, how do I get them out? Interesting you say that. So I, because Robert Pattinson has all the baggage that he, that he you know, walks around with, I mean, it, it weighs on him. You know, like he feels like he's constantly on the run trying to un- not be seen. So we brought that to the character. But we, you know, we did have general ideas about where we wanted this movie to – where the story was going to go. Uh, but we, we knew that ultimately it was going to – we needed to know the character really well. Mm-hmm. So once we knew the character really well through really extensive research and writing the backstory, which was way, way elaborate. Real quick, uh, sorry to interrupt, but did you do that because – Robert wanted that and needed that, or is that something you do on other projects? Uh, you do a level of it on every project, okay. but this project was almost uh, it, it was obsessive. Okay, because Rob really wanted to disappear into the role, mm-hmm. and like, remember, we wrote this character for him. It wasn't like he signed on to this project. He saw a still of our previous movie and said, "I'll do whatever you want to do next," and he didn't work with that. So then we developed this for him. But we, yeah, we, me and Ronald Bronstein, who I wrote the script with, we would 
we would be like Connie in a way. We would we would know generally where the movie was going, but then we would get into the minutia of the of of the story, and we would just know these characters. So we would be like, okay, well, how would he get out of this scenario? Mm-hmm. How is he going to continue on the run? And if he couldn't, honestly, we would just have him be arrested. And from a yeah, the directing standpoint, we do we have a plan, and the but the idea is that you kind of want to always be surprised and be open to certain things. Mm-hmm. And that allows you to. To bring in different points of view and just also things you never would have expected. Just for example, like in the jail scenes where we had a, originally set up how the, the remote situation was going to go down. We were blocking it out and Jerome, the guy who plays the, um, the actor I take the, the remote from, he said it wouldn't, it wouldn't go down like that. I'm like, well, how would it happen? And he starts telling us how it would actually happen in jail. And we then said to the, the stunt coordinator, okay, listen to, listen to Jerome. He's going he's gonna to set it all up. Because we wanted to be bring his point of view into it, because he was able to speak from uh, hmm. an area of experience. Heaven knows what I mentioned. Your last feature, the style is similar in terms of the the very tight framing, the urgency of the characters and their situations transfers to mm-hmm. the camera work as well, and kind of gives that frenetic pace and that sense of the world almost doesn't exist outside of mm-hmm. whatever the character has in front of him at that moment. That sort of distinctive style that now seems. Like it could be a signature of your work. Do you see it that way? Is it something that you think you will always bring well, to your no, films? Well, no, I think in, in Heaven Knows What, you know, that was a more kind of like a wayward character study mm-hmm. in a way. It was uh, about a girl. We were, it was starred a girl who was recreating scenes from her previous life. But yes, in that, in the two movies, I'd say in, in Heaven Knows What, it was a movie about being trapped in a weird mm-hmm. way. And, but more, almost emotionally so. In Good Time, we took, we, we saw when we watched Heaven Knows What, we saw what it felt like and we're like hmm what can we do to bring that feeling of watching this movie where you know it's not narrative based but all of a sudden if you can tie the narrative into the feeling of watching somebody you know almost you know claustrophobically so mm-hmm. you know all of a sudden it, then it becomes kind of a full experience and almost like 4D you know yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it, you take that just from like you, even like a documentary we did about like a basketball player Lenny Cook and there's certain times where whenever the camera would zoom in close in the older footage which was source footage you realize, okay, you can use this moment for real character depth, and you could also use it for editing purposes. So there was a practical level to it also that we discovered just from working on our other films and taking it to, like, as Josh said, to the narrative of a genre, you, it, it does interesting things. Just like the fact that you have to kind of even 4D, Josh mentioned, you have to piece together a location from these different close-ups. Exactly. You, you really become invested. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, and I suppose on a more basic level, even you feel like you are there, yeah, yes. <laughs> you're you're there and can't escape. I either. know. I've been very impressed and happy to see as the movie's coming out into the world. When I peek my head into the theater, the whole, you can feel the energy of the audience. Everyone's leaning yeah. on the edge of their seat. You almost don't want to open the door and let out the pressure. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I definitely felt it at the screening last night. Benny, I did want to ask you about your performance as Nick. He's a character who has a mental disability. He's he's slow, I suppose we would say. And I'd never seen you act before. I had never seen an interview with either of you guys. So I really didn't know what you looked or sounded like. And when you talked at the Q&A, I thought... Is he going to open his mouth and sound like Nick? Because I didn't feel like there was this layer of performance to what you were doing. And to your credit, you were not doing the sort of I am Sam routine mm-hmm. with that character. And you've got a guy in Connie who processes the world around him so quickly. And you're the exact opposite mm-hmm. of that in terms of just being someone who, who, who doesn't. And so it's very internalized. So how did mm-hmm. you approach playing that role? Well, I'm, I, I'm glad to hear you say that just because, yeah, I do feel very close to him. And because I'm pulling from my own experiences of emotions and just myself. So the very fact that 
I didn't want to play down to him, you know, just because I can feel certain things and I can see certain aspects of Nick's personality like, oh, if only he could feel this. Nick isn't aware of that, you know, so I wouldn't want to bring my awareness down to Nick because then I'm playing down to him. I'm condescending to him. That's the last thing I want to do. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to to be him. And just, yeah, 2010 um, with Ronald Bronstein, we were developing the character for another film and it was just a matter of he kind of pushed me to look into myself and bring out certain parts of my personality and exaggerate them. And when that film never didn't, it didn't end up panning out, but we brought that backstory into this film Mm -hmm. and he brought it to Josh and they wrote it in. But just the fact that I I do, I am pulling from inside Mm -hmm. and I feel really close to him and I didn't want to disrespect that because I'd be disrespecting myself in a way. So, but it was also just also in general, we, we would also look, we did look to cast somebody with a disability in that role and just some of the action set pieces would be We'd be working so fast at such a speed that we didn't – it felt like we'd be taking away their agency because we would speak to them and, and it would be too fast. You know, We wouldn't be able to move at where we wanted to go and we'd have to push them in ways that felt immoral. Mm-hmm. But talking to them and understanding certain ways that they would kind of process information was helpful for me just because I would realize, OK, somebody would talk to me or say something and there is a level of processing that has to happen. But it's a processing that, that Nick is doing that if I understand it – myself, it's different, you know? Yeah. So that level of, yeah, he does process the world. He takes it in in a different way, but that doesn't mean he's not listening. You know, sure. there, there are certain things that he, he's taking in. He just chooses not to express. Absolutely. And, and those are just as important. Well, I wanted to ask you about the word you use there, uh, immoral mm-hmm. and immorality, and kind of bear with me as I get through this question a little bit mm-hmm. here. But I was thinking about what that means when someone talks about morality. And essentially what you're saying is, I would throw out there, you're saying, I'm not comfortable with that, Mm -hmm. or I am comfortable with that, or I'm not comfortable with that, but I can justify it, or Mm -hmm. I can intellectualize it in some way. And I was thinking about the moments when viewers or critics or anyone watching a film or taking in a piece of art kind of rejects it in some Mm -hmm. ways. It might be that moment where they feel like the filmmakers are depicting it, but not condemning it Mm -hmm. or not judging it in Mm -hmm. some way, which I think is probably too simplistic, but... You guys don't shy away from these really uncomfortable situations Mm -hmm. in your films. I think we can point to a lot of moments in this film, in Heaven Knows What. I'd even, in a weird way, you mentioned Lenny Cook, which I I did just watch in preparation for this interview. And there's a moment uh, near the end where I'll just say briefly for the audience listening who isn't familiar with it, Lenny Cook was this top basketball prospect in New York City. Mm -hmm. At one point, even highly, more highly touted than LeBron James and Carmelo Anthony. Needless to say, did not work out for him the way their careers did. And it's now six years later. He's at his 30th birthday party. And you guys really linger on that party and him really making a fool out of himself. It feels like an eternity. It's probably only five or seven minutes. And there was a moment where I almost felt uncomfortable watching Mm -hmm. it, where I sort of felt like, are we on this too long? Is this almost exploiting his misery in mm-hmm. some way? And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Sure. I, think, I think art should be really messy. But I guess what I'm building up to is, are there places where you guys draw lines? Mm. Well, I mean, uh, we look, I mean, uh, in Lenny Cook specifically, I, I always found that the, uh, you know, his birthday party, I mean, having been the person there who was filming, I always found that to be, I was always really moved by that birthday party because with despite all the things that Carmelo Anthony and LeBron James have in life, you know, I think that if Lenny Cook had them, he might not be a better person. Hmm. And I think that having those people around him, you know, there's a very, I guess you can, it's an emotional moment that he has when he turns 30 and he realizes that's when most professional athletes start to maybe look at what they're doing next. And he has this moment where he realizes he doesn't, he should have been thinking that 
you know, earlier. And that was the moment of, of kind of clarity it, for me as a, as a filmmaker being there filming, you know, in, in a, that's a nonfiction film. So it's like everything that you're seeing, you're just kind of, you know, it feels like it's, it's, you can't edit it out because mm-hmm. you're seeing it. And with the fiction, you know, what we're trying to make, we just wanted to, to tell a thriller, a piece of pulp, something that felt dangerous. We want that element of danger because 2017 in America, it's a dangerous time. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a messy, weird time we're living in. And we wanted to kind of set this movie in 2017. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to kind of, you know, use it, not use it, but like have it be the backdrop to where this thriller that that takes place, where it actually feels thrilling and you kind of ask yourself these questions, you know, you're entertained by the movie because it's so propulsive and it's so, you know, on the edge of your seat, mm-hmm. you know, th- that you kind of just keep moving along with it. But our goal, hopefully, is that you walk away asking yourself, well, why did this happen? And why did this, And you know, what was going on there in the amusement park? And, you know, what 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 do we do? What is America, what is our, our status? And what is our opinion of the mentally disabled? Why are they so shafted? Why are we just running through life and forgetting about them. Yeah. What? How are mm-hmm. the police looking at people of color in this in this country, and how how do white people benefit from that, et cetera, et cetera? So we, this movie was an interesting, you know, nexus for us because we've been making these movies that were more more tied with reality, like a fiction, mm-hmm. a documentary, like Lenny Cook or Heaven Knows What, which is almost like a docudrama. But and and Daddy Longlegs, the film that we made, is basically this strange, weird version of our upbringing. So we wanted to. Now we're going to tell this this movie with a movie star in it and other certain actors. We, we wanted to kind of take all these things that we learned about how reality functions and mm-hmm. embed within it a narrative. Yeah, and it's like you, it's like when we're making this narrative, we, you can't ignore reality. You know, there's a, there's a level of that that's in this movie. You know, we're just gonna we're gonna show it how it is, and it might not be pretty, but that's how it is. And then just with regards to Lenny Cook, yeah, I, I always found that to be kind of a touching moment that he has with his wife. Okay. You know, that the, it was, he really does, he loves her and he's, you can see him expressing it. Okay. And she says like, stop singing, stop singing. And she's <laughs> kind of, and he's doing it kind of to make her laugh in a way. And I really thought that was, it was um, a human moment sure. for him. And yeah. yeah but I, I think that speaks to maybe what I was getting at in terms of, I had a different reaction to yeah. it. And that's because you guys as filmmakers are willing to take a more detached Sure. approach to it mm-hmm. a little bit and not not signify for the audience how we're supposed to feel about yeah. it. Sure. I mean, I think audiences are way smarter than people give them credit to be. I think that everyone deep down inside wants to be engaged with with mm-hmm. with a uh, story and and engaged in a way where they're not being told what to think and how to feel, but instead that they can figure out, "Oh, I'm going to I'm going to be invested in this story too and I'm going to wonder, you know, how how do I feel about this? How do, you know, am I, I'm relating to this guy because yes, ultimately he is chasing an American dream like we all are, but is the American dream a fallacy at this point? Is, you know, at what lengths are you willing to go? And, and would you, and you start to ask yourself like, well, would I take advantage of a scenario like he, like Connie did just mm-hmm. now? Would I go to such, because it's almost heroic what he's doing here. So last question, I'll start with you, Benny, on this one. I suppose I do have to ask about the movie star. I want to ask about the movie star because he delivers such a good performance here. Now, that was not a surprise Mm -hmm. to me. I did not see him in the Twilight movies, still haven't. Me me neither. Right. So the first time I saw him was in Cosmopolis, where Mm -hmm. he's fantastic, and he's really good in Maps to the Stars, and and then in The Rover, and The Lost City of Z. I mean, he's he's clearly a great actor, so anyone surprised at this point, I think, hasn't been paying attention. But in terms of, I think the question I want to get to is, was there a moment, to try to get to something specific, was there a moment when you were acting opposite him or in the directing process where you were with him where 
he took something that you had envisioned a completely different way maybe and gave you something that that was unexpected. I'll talk to the acting opposite. Just that there's that moment in the elevator, right, when we kind of when he takes me out of the the room mm-hmm. and then we're in the at elevator the beginning, yeah. in the beginning, yeah. And it was um it just kind of became this this explosion of emotion and he kind of grabbed me and hugged me and gave me this kiss and it was like it really was wow he's really getting into this moment and it was it's strange because we had done all these rehearsals before of of other situations where if you get physical with Nick it could go either way you know there and we let that happen you know mm-hmm. it could be it, that could have backfired yeah completely. that came through yeah and so he's taking a chance by grabbing him and hold, and like saying I love you and it, it was that moment was very intense and um, it took me by surprise and I and I kind of it I had to just roll with that instead of it getting violent and, and crazy inside there it, it, it was this intimate mm-hmm. moment yeah. I, I think there's a handful of moments yeah. I mean I was definitely certainly in the in the uh, character building uh, process pre-production there was a couple of moments that I saw it. I saw that he was bringing almost like a a tenderness to this character who is very hard mm-hmm. that I was really interested in. But specifically throughout the movie, there's like two moments. There's one moment in a scene opposite Jennifer Jason Lee in the taxi. And he tells this story. And ultimately, you know, for viewers who haven't seen the movie yet, he tells this story in an effort to help get her to pay for the bail yes. uh, for his brother. But the way he tells the story is as as if it's complete truth. Mm -hmm. And I really loved his interpretation of of the monologue because his interpretation is that he's not making this up. This is how what he really thought was going to happen there had he not taken him Mm -hmm. out of the scenario. Yeah. So he's – and like any good con man, there has to be an element of truth to it. And the way Rob – throughout the movie, he plays a con man, you know, the way he constantly brings – uh, like a weird, dire truth to all of the words that he's saying, I thought was very interesting. Yeah. And then the second moment would be when he goes down, you know, I'm not going to spoil anything, but he goes down and talks to this teenage character named Crystal in the movie, mm-hmm. and he tells her not to be confused. It's just going to make it worse for him. But the way he says yeah. it is, is so almost comedic, but really you understand it. It's just you like as an, and as an audience, <laughs> when we were watching the monitor, I was just like, we only did like two takes because uh-huh. the first take he did it, it was just kind of like, yeah, don't be confused. It's going to make it worse for it's me. It's almost like he's talking to the audience. It is, yes. exactly. He's, t- yeah. he's saying to everybody. You feel like, him in that moment. Just stay and yeah. move forward. Don't, yeah. don't even yeah. think about it. You know. I love what you said about that scene too in the truth and the monologue because watching it, I felt as if I knew he was lying on some level or he was making up information, but it's so truthful. He seems to believe it so clearly <laughs> that I assumed that he was infusing some of the fiction with reality. There must have been elements of their childhood that did Absolutely. blur into that Throughout in some way. Throughout the movie, he does that. Yeah. You know, in the hospital, he talks about his dad mm-hmm. who's dying. In the backstory, his dad died in a hospital mm-hmm. of cancer. And it was okay. like a thing that really... So there are these things. Obviously, a viewer who's going to watch the movie is going to be like, I didn't know that. Right. But it's because a con man, you never... Like, I was very close with a con man when I was a teenager. And... I never really understood what was truth and what was fiction, but I started to understand an emotion to his fictions and his truths that I started to get a weird, truthful portrait of him. Okay. I thought it was interesting. And yeah. it, this goes back to something we were talking about in the beginning that, like, yeah, watching somebody lie, when you know that they're lying, 
everything that they do with their face, everything they do with their voice becomes interesting. Yeah. And you just become engaged on another level. So there's a lot to talk about, not only with that <laughs> performance, but we didn't talk about Buddy Duras, oh who, who I just want to put basically in every movie now <laughs> after watching this. <laughs> he's and the, new Joe, he's the new Joe Pesci. Oh, man, I love him. <laughs> he's really great. But real quick, rapid fire, our film spotting five to close out this interview. I'm just going to hit you with quick questions. The last movie you guys saw in the theater. Dunkirk. Okay. Um, oh, damn. Benny has a baby. So <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's uh, I can't, I can't, I can't think. While you're thinking pro-Dunker? Pro-Dunker, okay. for sure. Actually, I heard someone told me that Dunkirk and Good Time were like weird cousins. I can see that. Yeah. I can see that. A movie you revisited recently. 48 Hours. Yeah. yeah. I love that movie. It's yeah. an incredible movie. <laughs> an incredible movie about race and how absurd it is. For sure. Racism specifically. Yeah. Did you watch yeah, 48 that 48 Hours, too? yeah, I just watched that one. What about an underrated movie? New or old, just one that you love and the rest of the world doesn't seem to appreciate. Hmm. Uh, Dirty Work? Yes. Yes, Dirty Work. I've never seen it, actually. And Norm MacDonald, yeah. Bob Saget directed. Uh, that That's one movie. That uh, uh, Also, Miami Vice, a lot of people seem to oh, not like that movie. It's coming around on that, the Michael Mann one. Yeah, yeah. It's now cool to like perfect. Miami Vice. Perfect is another one. Oh, yes, perfect. With John, the John Travolta, Travolta yes. Rolling Stone movie. I love, I love that movie. It. it. We just That's actually one that I, I just probably watched recently where I was like, this is incredible. The photography is no so kidding. clean and beautiful. And I really like, I attached Jimmy to his. Lee Curtis. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I attached to his character. I don't know. There's something that John Travolta was doing early on that is really special. You know, he, wow. was, he was playing a character that is very hard to do, you know, like. Um, it's called Rapid Fire, Benny. I know. <laughs> no, it's I, good. I appreciate <laughs> it because I, I probably was never going to seek out Perfect again. And now movie. I'm going to have to. <laughs> Last one then. Favorite book about movies or about movie making? Either Scorsese on Scorsese or Cassavetes on Cassavetes. Uh, notes on a cinematographer. Brisson? Robert, yeah. Yeah. Good stuff there. Yeah. He's, he's insane. <laughs> Absolutely. What's your favorite Brisson? Throwing uh, another one at you. Ooh, uh, favorite Brisson. Hmm, that's a tough one. Uh, I'd probably... Man Escaped. Uh, yeah, I'd have to say a Man That's escaped. where I came out. We did a marathon on Brisson here on the uh, show. So. Man Escaped, but close would be... I, God, I can't... I can't... Oh, Hard Balthazar? No, I can't for... Yeah, well, they're all really good. You <laughs> know, are. what I realize is that he actually ends up making the same movie every time, just with different parts of society and through sure. different... Well, it's it's incredible. Yeah. L'Argent is incredible. Mm -hmm. to, to end your career with that. Thank you so much for your time. Best Thank of luck you. with the movie. Thank you for having us. Time before. Is your brother okay? Listen, I want you to come with me. Now you are going to love it. This place where we are now can be a lot of fun if you let it. You're going to have a good time. My thanks again to Josh and Benny Safdie for that conversation. Great stuff in the Film Spotting 5 or the Film Spotting 4, yes. as it were. Well, you know, you could kind of say that maybe Dirty Work is a random movie you <laughs> yeah. love. Yeah, I think maybe we covered that ground. And Perfect, did they say, is is that something to do with like jazzercise or something? Well, yeah, that's a big part of it. You've never seen Perfect? How, why would I have seen Perfect? <laughs> I don't know. I, I think, saw it as a I kid in the 80s. I can picture the Oh, yeah. Jamie Lee Curtis, poster. John yeah. Travolta, headband, a lot of scenes right? of them headband doing like aerobics. Okay. It's I think basically we, about aerobics. I think we just answered the question of why I've never seen it. <laughs> I can't wait to rewatch it, honestly, after talking to those guys. Great book recommendations there. Scorsese on Scorsese, Cassavetes on Cassavetes, and then, you know, we bonded over our Brisson love. Oh, yeah. That Though they're much more hardcore than us. They've seen them all. That Brisson book on my nightstand table Wasn't that a right gift now? from me? Gift from my dad? I thought I gave it to you. 
No, I think okay. you gave me a Sachiget Ray book. Oh, I did. Another okay. marathon topic. Yes. So a gift from your dad. I have it at home as well and certainly recommend it along with Benny there. The Safdie Brothers' latest good time is currently playing in limited release. If you see it and agree or disagree with us, we'd love to hear your thoughts on the film. Feedback at filmspotting.net. I think as you heard a little bit at the end of the conversation, my last real question to them about their subject matter and how they approach it and how it might make some people uncomfortable. I think there's a lot about good time that is going to make people uncomfortable. And whether that's a good or a bad thing, I think is up to each individual viewer to decide. I think we can all agree, though, that Pattinson, like I said in the interview, it's not a surprise that he's a really good actor. But what he does here with this role, he's playing a character, this comes up a little bit in that interview, he's playing a role we've seen a million times, this kind of con man character who's very good as a talker and is someone who is a little bit hard to like and yet a little charming at the same time. And you know he has kind of noble intentions where he's trying to look out for his brother who needs his assistance. But the way he manages to feel like he is embodying this character with no artifice about it and yet it's not as if he isn't acting it's hard to it's hard to talk about obviously and i just think it's something people need to see and and we can try to hash out here on the show maybe deathmatch robert pattinson versus kristen stewart who Ooh. would you choose Ooh. they are both on a run they are both on a run and quite different but i suppose there are probably some similarities. I'm a big fan of their work lately, but in terms of the way I think of them as performers, they couldn't be more different with all the fidgetiness of Kristen Stewart. That's not something we get with Pattinson, but a great question. One, we also hope you will ponder. You can send us any of your comments at any time about that, the show, or anything else. Feedback at filmspotting.net. When you're done listening to the show, how about you head over to filmspotting.net because you will find 12 years of reviews there, interviews as well, and top fives. It's all in the show archives. And of course, that's where you can vote in the current film spotting poll, The Death Match of 1982, E.T. versus Blade Runner. If you haven't already, we also ask that you check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts, The Next Picture Show, and Film Spotting SVU. You can find both of them in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app. Out in limited release this weekend, The Only Living Boy in New York, a coming-of-age tale from 500 Days of Summer and Amazing Spider-Man director Mark Webb, a Sundance hit, Patty Cakes, about a Jersey girl who dreams of a rap career and the trip to Spain, highly recommended by us earlier in this show, along with the Safdie brothers, Good Time. In wide release, The Hitman's Bodyguard. The world's top bodyguard gets a new client, a hitman who must testify at the International Court of Justice. Samuel L. Jackson and Ryan Reynolds. Can you hear my enthusiasm? (laughs) It exists, Adam. It's real. It does exist. Logan Lucky, also out. Soderbergh, Channing Tatum, NASCAR. See it. We're going to see it. We're going to talk about it on next week's show and share our top five questions about the fall movie season. We consider the fall basically September up to Thanksgiving. Yeah. Do the films opening that Wednesday before Thanksgiving count? They do count. They do. Anything after that does not count. So when you're sending us those questions so we don't Mm -hmm. have to make our own list, you can consider the film's release that day. You can. Now, we'll see if somehow we change our minds and we go with a more Steven Soderbergh-centric top five. But for now, we're sticking with the fall movie preview. If there is something that you are looking forward to this fall and you are afraid we're going to overlook it, don't worry. 
Blade Runner 2049 will come up at some point, I'm sure. Send us an MP3 or leave us a short voicemail, and we may use it in next week's show. 312-264-0744. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Org. If you enjoyed the show, give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. That's an easy way for us to reach new listeners. Our music this week, it's by John Mark Nelson, comes from the album Four Days Away. More information is at johnmarknelson.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. So I know we got a lot to get done, but I did feel bad. And because we're shills for any cash that will be thrown our way, we got a, ma- a massacre theater entry this week from someone, mm-hmm. Asa, who said, I'm withholding donations until you bring back the post-credits hot mics portion of the show. Of all the segments yeah. that have come and gone, this hot one, mics. This one, someone's willing to pay so cash I thought, for. I thought maybe we could indulge for a few minutes because we have not seen each other in two weeks. I'm not even totally sure where you were. I was mostly home. We hit Wisconsin, another part of Wisconsin, um, not quite as far as Spring Green, for a couple days last week just to get away, sort of a family reunion thing. And yeah, other than that, I was mostly at home. So just relaxing the last days of summer. Daddy's so, back at school already. Okay, yeah. Her school started. Kids are next week. So... Kind of a sad time. Other than show prep stuff, did you see anything? No. I knocked out a bunch, as you know, we'll get to all three trip films. Um, did two in one night, back-to-back with Debbie. And then, um, yeah, it was pretty much just the stuff that I've been writing about and we're going to talk about. Yeah. How so are you? I, I didn't get in as much as I would have liked. There's still a bunch of stuff in theaters that I just wish I had an open day yeah. and I could go knock out. War for the Planet of the Apes, Atomic oh, Blonde. Right. I'd still like to see. There's at least one more I'm blanking on. The Dark Tower. No matter how bad yeah. everyone says it's going to be, I still want to see it because Boy, did, of the source did material. That get a big shrug. Yeah. So I don't know if that will happen. I was mostly prepping for the Safties interview. I mm-hmm. had to watch their films. I'd never seen them, any of them. So I had that. Extraordinary Stories, of course, was multiple movies in had to one. Find four hours. But I did... I did see two things that were sort of bonus. Sophie, as you know, just musicals obsessed. Right. And she emails me before we're going on vacation, or maybe she texted me, and she says, hey, they're showing Newsies in the theater. They're having like a night. You know those special showings of like Broadway plays Oh, they're or showing, right, right. They're showing it. At the movie theater. I think yep. they were even showing it here, near us, you know, out in the suburbs. I think they do that, yeah, not too far from us. It was on a Wednesday night or something, and there were multiple showings around the country, and she's like, we have to get tickets, I want to go see Newsies, and I'm like, we're going to be on vacation, that's when we're going to be in Myrtle Beach, so sorry, we can't do it. And she, a couple days later, texts me again, and she's like, well, it's playing in Myrtle Beach, too. <laughs> oh, man, she's doing her research. <laughs> so there was a night, and we did get a fair amount of rain, so we had some free time where we weren't at the beach. And we went and saw Newsies, which I've never seen the movie. 
and I don't know the musical. So I have no relationship to it other than I've never cared about it or ever Mm -hmm. been interested in seeing it. But she really likes it. And she was excited because it's like the 2012 version. It's the original Broadway cast. They're showing a filmed version of that. Which is supposed to be great. And... We took with us Quinn and Connor. They were both willing to go. Go. Holden didn't care. Sarah didn't want to go. She said she'd just stay back with Holden. But the two little kids did want to go. And I'm shocked at how much Connor actually stayed with it. Really? For a seven-year-old, was never once said, when's it over? You know, complaining. He was into it. And Quinn, who, as we've said here and we saw in Spring Green, took him to Shakespeare. And, of course, he's into Hamilton. And the way he sits on the edge of his seat at these productions— doesn't know Newsies except hearing a stray song or two, mm. and was on the edge of his seat for most of it. Like, nice. genuinely loved it. Sophie loved it. I have to say, it was a really good production. I liked it. Yeah, that's that's what I've heard. Sort of one of these reclamation projects, because the movie, I, I think I watched the movie... Christian Bale, right? Yeah, it's been... It was recently. I want to say within the last year or two. I have no idea. I think just with the kids as well, thinking, you know, as they're getting into musicals, here's mm-hmm. what I've always been curious about. It's supposed to be terrible. And I thought, well, surely, surely it's time for someone to come to the defense of Newsies, the movie. No. No? no. It's bad, huh? Bale is like so sneeringly cocky. Yeah. And he's just like, Jack, right? Is he like the main, yeah, yeah, the main that guy? Sounds, the that sounds leader. right. I think so. And Jeremy um, Jordan in the cast is phenomenal. Yeah, probably takes it a different direction oh, because it's really so good. hard to connect with Bale in the movie. And, you know, there are some some of the dance scenes are decent in the movie. I think it's uh, Kenny Ortega is the director of the movie. He made um, the high school musical movie. That yeah, I that like sounds quite, right. Quite a bit, Adam. <laughs> quite uh, a bit. Senior year, high school musical <laughs> three. So, yeah, but otherwise not much to Newsies, the movie. Sounds like you should stick with the uh, action. Yeah, it was definitely good if you somehow get a chance to see it. So then the other movie, we did have one night. I think it was our last night there where we decided to have a little family movie night. I put it out on Twitter a few days before that. You might have seen it. And I said to listeners, you know, if you you could throw out something. Yeah. I, I You know, I'm asking for help here sure. because I, I couldn't think of anything that seemed like an obvious hit, something that would go over with the family. And, of course, I'm hoping it's something I wanted to see or right. needed to see, too, as opposed to something that I've seen a hundred times. But I was open to whatever. And I, obviously, I was hoping it might be something from 2017 even that I wasn't thinking of. And I got a lot of good responses, some funnier than others, some more honest, I suppose, than others, people having a, a joke with me. But someone threw out your name. And I thought, oh, man, yeah, I think that's available. And we talked about that on the show. And right. it's it's animated. The kids might love it. And I need to see it. And then I looked it up. And it's Maybe you can get it on DVD, but it's still not streaming available anywhere. Okay. So that was out, and I came away from it really with no options. And then one of the days we were there on social media, I saw the thing about Bill Murray going to see the production Mm -hmm. of Groundhog Day. Right. And as you know, when Sophie and I in June went to see Dear Evan Hansen Mm -hmm. on Broadway, we were in New York for two days. We also saw Groundhog Day the next night. We weren't dying to see it, but it was playing on Monday night, which... Broadway doesn't usually have shows on Monday night. So there weren't a lot of options. And I'm like, well, I like the movie. Sophie hadn't seen it, the movie. So I'm like, we should go see it, though. It it might be pretty good. I actually thought it was really good. The stage production, the way they manage the the design of it in terms of replaying all those events over and over again, really inventive stuff Mm -hmm. I've never seen on the stage before. The actor who plays the Phil Connors character, I think, is really good. So I was into it. Sophie wasn't blown away like it's not in her top 10 of musicals, but. She thought it was entertaining. Okay. It is a musical, though. It's not. Oh, yeah. Just, okay. Totally right. a musical. And, and I'll just tell you one of the things that's interesting, an interesting choice they make, a couple that they make, is they give 
The second act starts with a song, a solo basically, by Nancy. Nancy, the character in the movie who's just there to be sort of the comedic fodder, you know, he he hooks up with her. He gets her to tell him what English class, you know, yep. pretends that they had that class together and then they yeah, hook up yeah. and later she's with Chris Elliott. So she gets a song. She has a whole song where she basically like bears her soul about who she really is and how the world views her. And I thought it was fascinating. I think other people probably watched that went, why are we hearing from Nancy? You know, and Ned Ryerson, we get a whole backstory on Ned and he has a great number. So, yeah. Yeah. So I I actually, like I said, really dug it. Read that article about Murray going to it. And I thought, okay, uh, it hit me. I was like, Groundhog Day is the movie. I, Sophie hasn't seen it. And I remember telling Holden, who you know Holden is very cynical mm-hmm. and very opinionated and a little bit too much like Phil Connors for, for my taste <laughs> for my 15-year-old. And I told him, I said, we should really watch that movie someday because you will love Phil Connors. Yeah, yeah. You'll love him when he's a jerk before he transforms, but you'll love him. And so we sat down and watched it as a family. And yeah, man, they loved it. They sort all of- loved it existentially troubling for the young ones, I would say. They were really into the whole, they somehow just immediately bought into that concept, I think because I set it up for them, of he's going to replay the same day. So they were just fascinated So when that happened, when that that first first time the repeat of the day happened, and they're playing the song again, and they were sort of looking around, almost like Phil Connors in the movie, going like, you know, with bright eyes, they thought that was hilarious. Like, oh my, it's happening again, and the replays, all that stuff. They were really into the conceit of it, and... And rewatching it, I realized just how good of a movie it oh, is. Oh man, yeah. Well, did didn't we do? We did a Sacred Cow. Or you might have been away for that. Was that I think me I missed and Michael? That. Yeah, I, yeah, I wasn't part of it, yeah, and I haven't listened to that. Now that I rewatched it, I need to listen to. Oh, that. It, it's so yeah, so strong. I mean, it completely held up. So. so one of the things, the only thing, the only issue I suppose I had where with it was I was wondering if, as perfectly structured as it is, mm-hmm. and it really is, does it completely pull off that? That moment is the night he has with Andy McDowell, which ends up being the catalyst to the completely new him. Mm-hmm. Is it enough? Is it really enough watching as perfect of a night as that is? The screenplay needs it to be then the justification for why he wakes up the next day and he all of a sudden is this new human being who wants That's to help right. everyone. Is it quite enough that we believe that night is enough? I I don't oh. know, but it 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 was not enough for me to... Uh, everything else about it was so perfectly yeah, plotted, I don't, and I, I don't love the performances. That holding me up, but it's been well. It was when Harold Ramis died, so that's been mm. a few years now, right? Yeah. So I think yeah, it's been a while since I have seen it, but did remember loving it. Yeah, that's yeah, cool. That really they good. Film spotting is listener supported. Join the film spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire. Film Spotting Archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.